You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be a little bit of a different discussion. We're going to kind of veer away from some of the usual uh, dart frog type of content that we do and cover another species that is, by and large, very well known, very popular for a number of reasons, but predominantly because of its eating habits. And I always thought that there was a lot more to them than just that. So tonight we've got a the go-to expert. I've got Dr. Caroline Loter of the Inkulu... Oh, I just totally pronounced, I totally mispronounced it, but uh, it's the IWS. I'm going to let her pronounce it because we tried before and I kind of failed. But in any event, uh, I want to thank Caroline for coming on the show. She has done a lot of research in the past with Pixiecephalus, and we're going to get into some of their natural history and what they live in, what their lifestyle is like in the wild. And then we're going to touch on a couple other topics in terms of their ecological impacts and, you know, can we correct their public image so that it's more than just being this mouth with legs. So, Caroline, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for coming to me from from South Africa. I also want to add, so a uh, bit of a time difference. I want to thank you for taking the time. I know it's really late by you and really, uh, really early by me. So, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Why don't you give us an introduction for the audience? Why don't you tell us your story and what were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians or really wildlife in general? What were those like and what led you to where you are today? Sure. So, um, so while I was at school, I uh, spent time at the South African National Zoological Gardens, um, working voluntarily with um, a broad spectrum of different animal species and I eventually had the opportunity of looking after an orphaned chimpanzee. And that was when I happened to meet Jane Goodall. And um, Jane was immensely inspirational for me. And because of my experience having worked at the zoo and having met Jane Goodall and and having also spent um, holidays with my family um, in the African bush, I decided to pursue a career in zoology, or rather in uh, wildlife conservation. Um, but by the time I completed my master's at university, I still I felt that I still hadn't really. Uh, acquired the skills that I felt were necessary to to make a tangible or significant change out there, if I can put it that way. Um, so I decided that for my doctorate, I had to I had to work on something that was going to make a a, a measurable difference out there and I asked around and surprisingly at that time um, there weren't many um, projects available at the university where I was that was the University of Pretoria um, a lot of the projects were um, kind of theoretical and physiological and, and uh, but 
I uh, I did come across a professor, um, Professor Willem Ferguson, and he he mentioned that um, this particular species, Pixicephalus dispersus, had recently been listed as near threatened in South Africa, and there wasn't much known about this particular amphibian species. And um, he actually he gave me. Um, a complete free reign to to do whatever research I wanted to do on this particular species. And so I designed my doctorate to investigate various aspects of the biology and ecology of the species uh, in order to obtain information that would hopefully help to improve the conservation of the species. And I, I, I bit off a bit more than I could chew. And it did take me almost a decade to complete my doctorate. Um, but in the end, I did succeed. And I feel that, uh, that um, yes, my, my research on the species did uncover some interesting um Findings and some valuable information uh, that that I believe is of conservation value for this particular species. So yes, that's my story. <laughs> Tell us about it's in Kululeko Wildlife Services, correct? I, I apologize for my mispronunciation yes. before. Okay, great, I got it. Uh, tell me about your relationship with with that. How did that start, and what's your role in it, and what sort of projects are you up to today? Sure. So after I completed my doctorate, um, I was appointed um, by a small ecological consultancy uh, in Johannesburg called Natural Scientific Services. And the Natural Scientific Services company um, was directed by three ladies, uh, one of whom was Kate McEwen. And after a number of years, Kate um, eventually established the Inkululeku Company, uh, which was specifically focused, uh, but not but not exclusively focused on on African bats. Uh, and in particular, a lot of the work the company has done uh, has been focused on bats at proposed and operational uh, wind farms. Uh, I met Kate in 2011 at Natural Scientific Services, uh, and I, I, um, I eventually met up with her again in 2019, so not so long ago. Um, and it was during 2020 when the first COVID lockdown um, happened that Kate then immigrated to the state. She's now based um, in Colorado and she's working for West, uh, West, Western Ecosystem Technologies. And, and she then handed the business over to me. Uh, and I've, I've since been managing director of Inkululeku. And, and I must say, we are, we are very busy at the moment because wind energy on the African continent is, is booming. <laughs> so 
yes, we are we are busy and we are trying to ensure that uh, wind energy development is happening in a in the least impactful way for bats and birds. That's interesting. We have we have solar farms here where I live, which sort of started within the past maybe fifteen years, and a lot of the residential homes have received uh, well it's it's 50 50 some of the businesses aren't really that legit but um they've received uh credits and financial compensation for allowing solar panels to be placed on their roofs that's great yes i I mean it would be lovely if if that kind of setup could be established here in south africa and 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 elsewhere in africa um you know, hopefully that that will still happen, but it, yeah, at the moment, um, that's not really happening. One of the species that you you worked with a while ago, and we'll, we'll kind of just focus on um, Pixiecephalus, I guess, because it's actually the focus of the podcast. But um, Adspersus, that's the species that gets very large, correct? Yes. Okay. So for the focus of this discussion, we're going to be talking about Adspersus. The other species, I think it's, is it Edulis? Yes. Okay. Okay. I've, I've had some experience with, with both, but um, why study them? Why, why monitor them? What's the importance of that? Well, I live in, um, in the city of Pretoria in the province of Gauteng in South Africa. And Gauteng, you could say, is at the epicenter of the giant bullfrogs distribution range in South Africa. And at the time when I started my doctorate, there was a lot of uh, coincidence or conflict between development in the province and the natural habitat of this particular species. Um, so, yeah. So, the, so that's that. That's that. It, it was a hot topic back then, uh, and sadly, uh, you know, over over the last twenty years, uh, the species has largely disappeared from from much of where it used to occur in Gauteng, and it's kind of limited at the moment to the the outskirts or the edges of the province. Were these frogs a common sight going back a, a few decades? Because I know that in the early uh, in the early nineties and the mid eighties, the idea that frogs are being threatened on a more of a global level from a whole myriad of causes kind of caught public eye. So, I don't know what your experiences were going back earlier, but was has there been a dramatic change in their wild populations as as time has passed? Yes, certainly they were um, in Gauteng, uh very abundant. You know, I've heard. I've heard people tell me that, you know, after a heavy thunderstorm, there would be loads of these frogs out and about on the roads at night. Um, so much so that that vehicles would actually slide across the tarmac from all the all the frogs that had been squashed 
by vehicles. Um, but but nowadays, um, you know, you, you don't see that anymore. You, you don't, <laughs> you'll be lucky if you see an individual um, here or there. So, yes, there's been a dramatic decline in the species. Um, and I've estimated based on um, genetic research that there's been that there's been, well, that was already 20 years ago, more than a 90% decline in the species uh, in the central part of Gauteng. So, yes, it's quite sad that the species used to be very abundant and, and now it's, it's very scarce. It's interesting how a species that seems to be so just rope, I mean, they look, it's a tough looking frog. I mean, they, they look like they could stop a truck, let alone get run over by one. What makes them so well, I don't want to say sensitive per se, but but like what has contributed to their decline? Well, I would say um, the number one reason is is the fact that they require large expanses of terrestrial habitat, specifically native grassland, um, to persist. You know, they spend 99% of their lives um, buried underground in terrestrial habitat several hundred meters, if not several hundred kilometers away from their, uh, sorry, not several hundred, but a, a, a kilometer or possibly more from their breeding site. And, um, and, and the problem is that with um, human population growth and urban ex, uh, urban expansion. Um, they their their native grassland habitat here in South Africa has has been greatly diminished as and has become um, highly fragmented. And and now now all that is left are are small isolated populations. Um, on, on very degraded um, patches of natural habitat. What impact do they have on the local ecosystems? Because here, I mean, here in the U.S., the, the only thing that I can really think of to compare them with would be the American bullfrog. And they seem to be about the same size. They seem to have the same uh, appetite for, for prey. But they don't disappear for the long periods of time that that the African bullfrog would do. Like, what's their involvement with with the local ecosystem? Like, how do they contribute to it? How are they affected by it? Sure, I I would say that they they form or they historically they they represented a a significant part of the food web on the. Um, on the uh, on the uh, high felt of South Africa, the high felt is kind of the 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 high lying grassland area um, in the interior of South Africa. Um, you know, they when they breed, um, they can breed. You know, they can breed ex explosively and and highly successfully, and. One, uh, you know, following a successful breeding event, there can be thousands of froglets emanating from a fairly uh, small-sized um, 
breeding site. Uh, and, and that's, you know, breeding events like that would have provided uh, a whole host of other species with a, 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 an immense food supply. And then, of course, on the other hand, um, the bullfrogs would have also played an important role in um, in in uh, preying and 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 influencing the populations of 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 other species, in particular termites. Uh, I've seen, for example, at certain breeding sites, uh, an adult will sit at a termite mound and just absolutely gorge itself with termites to the point that it can barely walk off the woods. Um, and and so yes, I think that, I think historically this particular species formed an important part of the food web on the high felt of South Africa. That's interesting about the the termites. Can you walk us through their life cycle from from beginning to end, maybe starting with with a spawning event and then what happens to the tadpoles and how do they mature into adults that would become breeding age? Yes. So um, it all kind of, it all starts with a heavy, a heavy summer thunderstorm, uh, usually in the late afternoon. And after such an intense rain shower, adults will emerge from the underground burrows and they will move quite swiftly um, to their breeding site. Uh, it will take them not more than a couple of hours. And uh, the males are usually first to arrive, and that is because they are... Uh, they bury themselves um, a lot closer to the breeding site compared to the females, uh, and when the you know it's kind of almost like a rush, like you know the, it's first come first serve for optimal territory. Uh, so it's a, it's kind of like a race for the males to reach the breeding site, and once they reach the breeding site, um, they then um, kind of occupy. Uh, territories, um, and they will they will occupy those territories um, until the females arrive, and and also even afterwards, the females usually take um, a, a, a full night or longer to arrive at the breeding site, and then the the actual breeding event is quite explosive. Um, it it usually reaches a, a a climax in the in, in by mid morning or in, in in by midday, um and and after that it it then can quickly wane, and the females then after mating with the males they they then uh, retreat from the breeding site, and it's generally the the largest, most aggressive males that were most successful at uh, defending and maintaining territories that um, mated with the females. Um, and they will then 
stay on at the breeding site to protect uh, the fertilized eggs. And it's a matter of a day or two um, before the eggs hatch into tadpoles. Uh, and tadpole development takes from 18 to 30 days until metamorphosis. Um, it, all, it all depends on how hot the water is. And the tadpoles generally um, remain in um, uh, uh, what's it, distinctive groups uh, at, at, the, at the edge of the water where the water is hottest. And a male will a male will remain with his um, with his uh, group of tadpoles um, for as long as possible. Um, because if a male does abandon his tadpoles, they will most certainly be um, eliminated by predators um, and in particular water birds. So it's essential that the tadpoles of this species are, are guarded by adult males in order for the tadpoles to reach metamorphosis. And uh, once the tadpoles have reached metamorphosis, um, the froglets spend a couple of days at the water's edge and then they head out and they move in all directions. Uh, but what I did find interesting when I was doing research on the species is that um, these frogs, I guess like most animals, will choose the path of least resistance when dispersing from the breeding site. Um, and at a lot of the breeding sites where I worked, there were man-made footpaths through the grassland, and these frogs would use those footpaths to disperse um, from their breeding site. And um, like I said, the males generally um, eventually buried themselves a couple of hundred meters from the breeding site, and the females uh, buried themselves up to a kilometer, possibly further from the breeding site. It was almost as if um, the females try to... Uh, stay away from the males you know they are, these frogs are cannibalistic um males will eat tadpoles froglets will eat each other tadpoles will eat, eat each other males will eat females um and uh, i th i think the females generally bury themselves um further from breeding sites to to kind of <laughs> keep clear of the males um yeah, so that's that's the that's the general life cycle of the species. So, how many? Well, I don't. I don't. I, I, obviously, I can't say days, but out of a, a year, out of twelve months, how much of that are they actually out and about and active? Mm, well, I would say that the average adult probably doesn't spend more than five days a year at a breeding site, but they do spend perhaps two weeks or more, um, maybe three weeks, maybe even more than that, above ground, generally at night, um, feeding 
in the vicinity of their burrows. Um, yeah, but but yeah, even still, um, it's it's quite remarkable. These frogs really do spend most of their lives buried underground. It, it, does that have something to do with their feeding habits? Almost, it's like it's a literal feast or famine type of situation. Is it is it fair to say that when they emerge, it's a rush to consume as many calories as they can, so that they can uh, they can well, it'd be would it be brumation or estivation that they go into? Um, it's estivation, and and yes, it's it's true. They 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 absolutely gorge themselves on whatever it is they come across. So, like I say, um, they will they will eat each other. They will eat, um, you know, they will if they find a lot of the time after a heavy thunderstorm, it's not only the bullfrogs that come out. There are many other species, especially termites winged termites come out on mass um and like a bullfrog will will position itself at a termite mound and just lap the termites up as they emerge from their from their um from their holes and um yes they they really they do have a voracious appetite um but but yeah there's a lot more to them than that (laughs) What happens during estivation? Because that's another topic that I, I don't think people realize because in, in the media, we generally seem to, we tend to see them active in breeding. And there's a YouTube video that's been out for a long time of a, of a male a pixie using his back legs to clear a path from one pool that's drying up into a pool that's not for the tadpoles and they all rush through. But if the bulk of the year is spent estivating, what what is that process like? Because I've... I've seen frogs go into a sort of a beginning state of estivation, at least in captivity. They'll kind of seal themselves up in this mucus layer. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. So, so it's it's it generally. Um, well, I think it, it commences whenever they go underground, um, but they will they you know after after heavy rain. Um, well, it, it appears to me that heavy rain, you know, as the water infiltrates through the ground, it 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 wets their skin and it softens this 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 mucus, you know, the this dried skin around their bodies, um, and, and it, it wakes them up. Um, and the the number of times that a that a particular individual bullfrog will emerge is kind kind of positively related to the number of heavy thunder showers um, that there are during a particular summer mm. and, um, and and also the intensity of the of the rain determines um, what proportion of a population emerges um, but yeah generally I think these these frogs um, fall into kind of a deep estivation round about autumn and um you know it they as you say they they will they will steadily um produce what people refer to as this, a cocoon around their body which is really just um um a a a protective layer of sloughed um skin skin layers 
Uh, and and the the longer the winter period or the longer the drought, the thicker the cocoon becomes. Um, what I've also noticed is that the porosity of the soil uh, or the earth tends to determine how deep these frogs bury themselves underground. So in in the Midrand area in Johannesburg where I was working, uh, where there's cut quite a high clay content in the soil, um, the the bullfrogs would bury themselves no deeper than about 20 centimeters beneath um, the surface of the ground. But I know, for example, or I've heard in, like in the Kalahari where where the soil is is very sandy and porous that individual bullfrogs have been found a meter or deeper uh, beneath the surface of the ground so um yeah that's it's interesting they you know it's their their estivation and their emergence from estimate from estivation um i think is is highly regulated by um by rainfall and and the infiltration of rainfall uh through the earth One of the things that I was always curious about was, uh, well, let, let me let me frame it first. A lot of us tend to think that the ambient temperature or the temperature at the at the ground level is the temperature everywhere, and by that I mean if it's 110 degrees in South Africa, it's 100 degree, it's 110 degrees, you know, six feet below water, or six feet below ground, up in the trees, etc. I mean, are they going down lower, obviously, to avoid the heat? So what is the temperature down where they're burrowing to? Uh, I must be honest. I never looked at that, um, so I can't really say. Um, but I would imagine that, um, you know, obviously the deeper they go, the cooler it is. Uh, and that, that is almost certainly also a contributing factor. Yeah, I was always just curious if it was a function of of being hot and dry or being just just dry. That was kind of one of the things that that mm. I always wondered. Yes, I that's that's a good question. Um, it's I, I get the feeling that it's it's more um, it's it's within their distribution range. The um, Rainfall is the has a stronger influence um, on the estivation and the emergence of these frogs, um, but it's temperature that that is actually the the factor that um, kind of defines their distribution range, especially uh, cold temperatures uh, during winter. So the the, the minimum temperature in winter. It's interesting. They it all these little subtleties in terms of how their natural life cycle goes. It just it just seems so uh, so complex compared to what you would think about it. Because I know uh, people who keep them in in captivity gen generally tend to keep them in a very very simple setup, which is kind of the same year round. And um, I I wanted to ask you if if someone was going to keep pixie cephalus in captivity regardless of the situation whether it was a zoo or whether it was a private individual is it appropriate to 
allow the frog to go into estivation and to go through all these cycles as part of its normal life cycle? Or is this something that, in your opinion, think you think that they could do without it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I do, I do think these animals, you know, ideally, I mean, I guess it depends whether in captivity the, the individuals have the opportunity to breed explosively or not. You know, for example, whether the males have the opportunity to, um, to tussle with each other and to fight with each other and um, because that's quite energetically demanding and and if that if that were to happen I would think that they would they would require some some rest in the form of of, of estivation. Um, but if that's not happening in captivity then I guess I guess estivation is not as essential as what it would be under entirely natural circumstances but yes i you know I, i've i've often seen bullfrogs in captivity and um you know the thought that comes to mind is that i think the, these these frogs deserve more space than what they usually have in captivity i mean i guess that could be said about a lot of animals but um i you know from what I've seen from um, the radio tracking and and other research that I've, I've done in these frogs, they, they can move large distances, um, even in just a single night. Um, and I, I think I think they they you know to yeah you know, I, th I think in captivity I think they would do well with having space with having. Uh, a, a good mixture of aquatic and terrestrial habitat, um, and it would maybe not even be a. It would it could actually be a, a very good thing for them if the aquatic habitat were to uh, dry up annually, because that is that is what happens with their natural habitat in the wild, um, and and it is it is precisely the. Um, the drying up of the breeding sites, which, 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 um, which makes the breeding habitat uh, suitable. Um, what I found here in Gauteng is um, a lot of a lot of wetlands, where the, or rather pans where these frogs historically bred, have um, have become more permanent in nature. You know, the water has become uh, more permanent, it's become deeper, it's become colder, and it's actually um, prohibited the breeding by the species. And so I think um, one, one might uh, encourage uh, breeding by these frogs in captivity if, if their breeding, if, 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 if their artificial aquatic habitat is, is, is actually made to dry up once per annum <laughs> if i make if i'm making sense no you make you make perfect sense i i often wonder because i've i've kept them on and off for the past uh, 20 years in fact one of the first frogs that i ever kept was a, was a pixie and at the time there really wasn't a tremendous amount of information on their natural history and whatnot and i the the conventional 
thinking at the time was that they were basically just these like pet rocks with a mouth and then they would eat essentially whatever you put in front of them. Well, fast forward as my ideas about what constituted proper care started to change, it occurred to me that, well, they only do that for a very short period during the year. So how do we replicate what happens to them normally the, the other, you know, three quarters of the year or, or however long it is? So I, it's just one of those things that I always ask myself is, am I doing the right thing by allowing this frog to live in sort of a mid state between, uh, obviously it's not too arid, obviously it's not too moist, but should we really be trying to replicate that 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 cycle between seasons in captivity and it, it even goes into zoos as well there's a very large uh, very world-renowned zoo near me whose name i won't mention but uh they have uh pixie cephalus on exhibit they have a large male in what is probably about a, a 40 or a 60 gallon aquarium and it's always set up as completely aquatic so i don't know if they take this frog off of exhibit and then they swap it out with another frog or what but I always think to myself, you know, what, what are we doing here? We're, we're keeping something that buries itself for almost the majority of its life, only to come out for a short period, gorge itself, lay thousands and thousands of tadpoles, and then disappear again. Mm. Yes. I, I think it could be really fascinating for people if if the species were to be kept um in, in under more natural circumstances in captivity, perhaps you know, I'm just imagining, um, you know, an enclosure with say twenty individuals, twenty adult individuals, uh, with a lot of kind of uh, sandy, grassy habitat and a, 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 a kind of like a shallow pond in the middle, um, and kind of kind of simulating natural circumstances, kind of um, creating like a, an artificial thunderstorm, you know, getting getting the, the soil absolutely soaked with water and hopefully enticing the frogs to to move to the pond um, and 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 you know hope, you know perhaps they might then engage in breeding. Um, and 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 then eventually letting the water uh, steadily dry out and 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 um, and let, you know see if the frogs then um, bury themselves. It w- it would definitely be interesting. I, I I don't think that people's approaches to keeping would be the same though, because I know that. Here in the U.S., they're bred in captivity fairly regularly, and there's a not everybody does it because there's there's obviously those those things such as cycling and whatnot come into play. The uh, large numbers of individuals needed, et cetera, that all happens. But I, I think that their appeal is just because people tend to keep them so simply, and I often wonder if that's the if that's the right approach. If we should be keeping them more in a more complex way, I, I don't know. But as far as their their main appeal it always seems to be diet and you know like i mentioned before when people bring up dart frogs the first topic for conversation is always the poison and after a while it gets a little it gets to be a little bit much for me because i think to myself well there's a lot more to them like the the fact that they're poisonous obviously is what makes them very unique but not that unique because there's other organisms on earth that are that are poisonous but 
we tend to look at at pixiecephalus as being this eating machine and i've seen the way people feed them in captive situations and a lot of people tend to make a, a spectacle of it which i i don't personally agree with i don't really go for that whole thing but what is a real wild diet for pixiecephalus like because you mentioned termites before and that that actually came quite as quite a surprise to me because termites are relatively small but in the wild what are these frogs eating besides uh besides termites and each other so so i think they they are very opportunistic they they eat whatever they come across which they can fit into their mouths um i would say most of the time they probably eat um termites um just because that's that's probably what they're going to encounter most often um but i've seen them eating um other amphibians smaller toads uh, and other frogs um they will they will eat um young birds like young water birds like young ducklings um, uh, they will eat snakes um like I say, they will eat each other. Um, so, but what what I've seen is that they will they will eat whatever they come across. <laughs> yeah, I guess it just seems to be like whatever whatever happens to be in front of them. I guess the that's that's what they'll go for. Yes, it's like like me at the buffet counter. I guess. <laughs> Although I'm actually, not a, I'm not a big actually. I'm kind of picky. I'm not really that big of a buffet person, but. Are there any captive breeding programs to to reintroduce them into the wild, or is there any any management programs going on in terms of preserving their populations? You know, out, outside of just protecting areas for them, is there anyone actively breeding them in captivity? Um, the Johannesburg Zoo um, did have um, uh, some pixiesephalus bullfrogs at one stage, which they were um, which they had in captivity. I I'm not sure whether they ever released any individuals into the wild, um, but apart from that, I'm not aware of of any other uh, institution or group that has been actively breeding and releasing these species into uh, these frogs into the wild. Um, it, it is it is quite sad, like I say, because um, they are disappearing, uh, and the thing is, because they are quite a difficult you know, the activity is difficult to predict and they, they're difficult to study because, like I say, they, 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 like the epicenter of their distribution is, is here in Gauteng. And, um, and so they, you find these frogs in, in areas that are already quite disturbed. Um, you know, you, it's 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 not easy to work where these frogs occur, and it's not easy to predict their activity. And um, there are not many breeding sites remaining um, where where conditions are are undisturbed. And so, I yeah, it's it's almost you know it's almost it's almost you know on the one hand you could say. They're almost like a lost cause here in Gauteng, but but I think you know that's that's painting perhaps a very bleak picture. You know, outside of Gauteng, elsewhere in South Africa, I think there are still populations that are doing quite well, um, and and because of that, 
the species currently does not have a threatened status in the country. It, it was at a time regarded as near threatened, um, but at, at present it, it is not considered near threatened or threatened. And, and so, yeah, sadly, actually, nothing, nothing is being done to, to actively try and improve the conservation of these frogs. Do they have a, a perception among the general public as just sort of being not even worth it? And I mean, by that, I mean, certain species tend to garner a lot more public support for whatever reason. I mean, polar bears, pandas, it's generally mammals. It's very rare that an amphibian actually gets support from the public based on what it looks like or its habits. I mean, do you think that the public image or the public perception of the species needs to change to better um, to better keep it alive in, in the wild? Um, you know, I think it's, it's a mixture of things. I think, first of all, I think the vast majority of people who live within the distribution range of the species are not even aware of, of the presence of these frogs because they spend... Uh, such a brief time above ground every summer. So first of all, most people don't even aren't even aware that the species exists. And but but those who are aware um, are almost always really uh, are, are quite fascinated and 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 protective of these frogs. Um, I must say, I came across people from all walks of life and. And I, I, I always, I always encountered a lot of um, public enthusiasm. Um, you know, I, I, in fact, I never, I can't, I can't recall a single account of where, um, of someone being um, repulsed or, uh, or, or kind of dismissive of this species um people were always actually quite fascinated and um and excited to have these frogs in their yard or in their suburb so it's uh, I, th- I think i think i think i think the biggest problem facing the species is that most people don't even know that it exists uh and then the second big problem is that where these frogs remain their habitat is just very fragmented, and um, and as a result, they are just they are struggling to persist. Uh, and it's only really in large protected areas where I think populations are likely to persist over the long term. It's amazing how certain species that. I mean, for for me here in the U.S., they are extremely common among keepers. They're one of the almost to the point where I, I hate to use the term, but I unfortunately have become almost like a disposable pet where they're relatively inexpensive and they can be you know available by the hundreds at, you know, at any given time. Well, I shouldn't say at any given time. They are kind of cyclical in terms of when they're available, but I would never have thought in my wildest dreams that they were that in da- well not endangered officially but in that great deal of danger in their natural habitat and it's like the here in in the 
in North America, we have axolotls, which are functionally extinct in the lakes where they lived. I think it was near Mexico City, yet they thrive. They're one of, probably one of the most, if not the most commonly kept amphibian in captivity. It's just amazing how something can that you think is just so hardy and so viable and just does so well can still be so threatened in the wild. Yes, it's um it's exactly that. That's a that's a good analogy. Um that's that is precisely the situation with Pixicephalus. Um yeah, for, fortunately, like I say, there are still areas in South Africa where I think there are populations that remain um largely undisturbed. Um but yeah, they're becoming um fewer and farther between. <laughs> Before we, we wrap up, we're, we're kind of coming down to the end, but we, you and I had talked a little bit off air before we started about the importance that uh, that zoos can have. And I know that you have some feelings about, about zoos. Is that anything that you'd like to share with us before we uh, kind of wind down? Um, yes, you know, um, it's interesting. Um, my, whole, my whole career path, um, I think, was 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 kind of uh, it was rooted in, the, in in my experience as a child working at at a zoo um, and and I know that um, like my best friend and, and some other friends of mine who worked with me as well at the zoo also went on to become wildlife vets and 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 and, and you know they, they pursued similar careers, and so in that respect, um, I think the, the the you know in terms of like education and 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 um, you fostering like an appreciation for and an interest in animals, I think zoos zoos have an important role. Uh, but but yes, you know I've uh, over the years I have come to. Um, grow increasingly concerned about about um, you know the welfare of animals in captivity and and so I think it's a it's a fine balance between um, educating the public and making them appreciative of 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 non-human life and and ensuring that you know the animals that are in captivity are are, are you know are are kept under circumstances that are as natural as as possible um for them yeah <laughs> oh, those are all things that i could definitely agree with i i mean myself on a personal note and many of the people that i know and i interact with on a regular basis generally are of that camp that you want to really understand something's natural history and have it kept in a captive way that is consistent with the way it should be living, not necessarily with what you think it should be doing. So I don't know. It, it's just, it's such a, it's such a contentious topic. There's so many different opinions on what's right and what's wrong. I don't, I hope we get it right someday. I, I don't know that we ever will or not, but I hope we do. I think, I think the guiding light um, should always be one's intentions you know, if one's intention is to, is to, uh, is to, if one's intention to keep animals is to, is to educate people 
so that they uh, will um, appreciate animals and 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 you know and and hopefully go on to um, to to appreciate the conservation. Then you know that's a good thing. Um, but if one's intention is merely to keep animals for 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 um, I don't know, you know, personal, I don't know, interest or for, 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 for uh, you know, from, a, from perhaps um, a business point of view or, or economic circumstances, then, yeah, then I, I guess that's, that's when things become questionable. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I totally understand. I, um, I do want to ask you, though, I mean, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I, just so everyone knows, we're going to do a little bonus episode, okay? So if you want to hear more, we're going to actually discuss some topics that aren't quite frog-related. But before we wrap this episode up, um, Caroline, I just wanted to ask you if anybody wanted to find out more about what you do and everything, how would they, how would they what are some resources that they could look up to find out more about your work? Um, well, my, my thesis, I think, is, is, is available on the internet. Um, one can simply go to my LinkedIn profile um, and, and download it from there. Um, I, I'm also happy to send people information <laughs> if they really want. Um, yeah, I can, send, I can send you my email address. Um, people can always contact me by email if they wish. Um, and there are a couple of, of peer-reviewed papers that I've published. Um, people can um, look for them using my maiden surname, which which was Yetman, Y-E-T-M-A-N. Um, yes, yeah, so I, w- I would say I would say that that should that should um, steer people in the right direction. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. So like I said, everyone, we're going to, you know, we're going to kind of wrap this one up, but I'm going to release a bonus episode where uh, Dr. Loader and I are going to talk a little bit about her work with bats because the bulk of her work nowadays is with bats. So if you're intrigued by bats and the role that bats have with humans and conservation, etc. We're going to do a little bonus episode, so stay tuned. I'm going to have that out soon. And until then, I want to thank you guys for listening. hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I've I've learned a lot, as usual. I I love the species Pixycephalus, and I was surprised to learn about uh, how fragile they can actually be. So I hope you all enjoyed it, and I'll catch up with you guys again soon.